Welcome to My Morning Cup, a podcast produced by Costa Media Advisors, a strategic communications company. My Morning Cup, where we have interesting conversations with genuine people. I'm Mike Costa, your host. My guest this week is Donna McConico. Donna is the CEO of Signal Centers, a Chattanooga-based nonprofit whose mission is to improve life of families with young children and for people with disabilities. Donna's journey to Signal Centers started with her desire to make a difference for families, children, and individuals. Donna, welcome to My Morning Cup. Before I ask you about meeting Elvis three times, mm-hmm. let me ask, what's in your morning cup? Well, it's unfortunately, it has been forever a Coke product, but it's Coke Zero Vanilla. I haven't tried that yet. It's delicious. Yeah. I have it every morning. It's my Java. <laughs> but it is good to see that here in Chattanooga, you've got a Coke product. I do. Well, we want to talk about, you know, your path to signal centers. Um, I know you were born here in Chattanooga, but uh, you left, what, when you were six years old? Absolutely. But all my grandparents stayed here. This is where I spent summers. This is where I came for holidays. So Chattanooga has been my home for the 67 years I've been on this planet Earth. So when you were six, your folks moved away for work, I'm assuming. My dad had been in World War II, and when he came back, he got married and started. Actually, he worked at the Wheeland Foundry for a little bit, and then he went to work in a loan company, and he opened new branches in the Midwest. So we moved around a bit. Where in the Midwest did you live? Well, Arkansas City, the great metropolis of Arkansas City, Kansas, Parsons, Kansas, uh, Blackwell, Oklahoma, just small towns in the Midwest area. Mm -hmm. How was that? You know, I loved it. It was flat. There was wheat fields and oil wells, and I flew kites every day, okay, because there was always wind. But they had a great educational system. It was a small-town atmosphere, so we knew everybody. We were really involved in our church, and that was kind of the center of our lives. And I was very fortunate to have parents who loved each other and loved us and always served the community. That is such an important thing. My dad used to tell my brothers and I, the best thing you can do for your children is to love your wife. Absolutely. So you didn't actually grow up in the Midwest. You ended up moving to Memphis, which you said flat. And when I think of flat, I always think of Memphis. Yeah, it's the start of flat, okay? <laughs> now, Kansas is a whole different flat. Well, you know? <laughs> I drove through Kansas once, taking my daughter to Denver, and it was just nothing. It's the same from border to border. <laughs> perfect landscape for AI vehicles, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that should be an AI testing ground. Exactly. But I digressed. You moved to Memphis. How old were you when you moved to Memphis? I was about 12 or 13, headed into junior high school at the time is what it was called, and went to high school there and then went to college there. Actually, I had one little kerfuffle. I started at a small college and had a full ride, and I uh, had fun in college instead of <laughs> studying and was invited to go elsewhere. So I went I went home to Memphis and worked my way through the last years of my schooling. So, But in the introduction, I talked about you met Elvis three times. That's not the lead we bury. We got to get to that one. <laughs> well, my first time I met Elvis, we lived in the Whitehaven area of Memphis and had a wonderful experience there. Which is where Graceland is. Graceland is there. I lived on Lear Drive, which backs up to Graceland. Oh, how cool. So, But the first time I met him, my sister was working at Sears at the Southland Mall. And Elvis would pay mall employees to stay after hours and take people shopping. But they didn't keep everybody there, so they kind of rotated who got to be there. 
And my sister called me. I mean, who would do this now? And said, why don't you come up here? Elvis is coming through. You know? <laughs> and I got to go. And he shook my hand. And she shook everybody's hand in all of Sears. And then she sold him a John boat. Okay. <laughs> so that was my first encounter with Elvis. Very cool. And my next two were I was, uh, I had a good friend who was working at Liberty Land. And he used to do the same thing at Liberty Land, which is kind of a discount Winifasoka, you know, like, like Winnie. So <laughs> I've never heard it described like that. Yeah, that's pretty much it. But it, I loved it when I was a kid, you know. Oh, it was a great place. I grew up around there. Yeah, so it was fun. And so he, uh, he was running the Chevy show. And Elvis came back after he would get, he rented it out all night from like midnight to 6 a.m., and he would bring everybody by, and he shook everyone's hand who was running a ride and said, thank you, thank you very much. Well, anyway, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Now, the real question is, was he as good-looking as everyone said? You know, here's the terrible confession. I was not a huge Elvis fan. <laughs> I was a Beatles fan. So. <laughs> so you end up in Memphis, and you go to Memphis State? Yep. And what did you major in there? Uh, one of the five majors, and the one I graduated in was sociology. But I, I really couldn't decide. I started in nursing. That wasn't for me. Okay. I, tri- I tried education. That really wasn't my deal, even though that's where I live now. But um, tried a bunch of things. I dated my Spanish professor and majored in Spanish for a short while. <laughs> <laughs> he was a grad student. You yeah. know? <laughs> anyway, uh, so I wandered around and finally went to my professor and said, what can I get out in first? And so I graduated in four years with uh, more hours than anybody could ever imagine. And uh, he said it was sociology. But by then I decided and felt like I was being led to go to seminary. So I started in seminary two months after I graduated. And this may sound like a stupid question, but I've never had that feeling. Right. So what is it internally that says, you know what, I think this is the path I want to go? You know, I was raised in the church. Yeah. I had a strong faith. And I... I felt like that was a way to help change my world. Spiritual direction, contemplation, meditation had always been a part of my life, even as a young, young person. I knew that it had had an impact on me, and I wanted to have an impact on others. And that seemed like a great possibility. So, Where was this desire born to help others and to really focus on making that your career? You know, I don't remember ever thinking of anything else. I mean, I think that's one of the reasons back in the day when I was coming along, women were mostly nurses or teachers. And I knew that those were two helping professions that I thought a lot of, I had a great deal of respect for. And uh, I quickly figured out those were not for me. So the other place that I could see people making a difference was in ministry. And my youth minister, our choir director, had always had a huge influence on my life. And I thought I could have an influence on others that way, help people deal with issues in their lives. I want to go back to your five majors and and just kind of the the point of that. You tried a lot of things in school that nothing really would, and, but you finally got to the point and said, okay, what can I do to get out? Exactly. How important was that to just get out and then really decide what you want to do? Well, I think that as we can tell from my career path, Mm -hmm. I have changed about every 15 years and I like doing new things. And so I think that was part of the deal for me in college is I'd take education courses. I found that fascinating. Nursing was wonderful. I was really good in all the nursing courses. I was horrible at the hospital. So the practical application of it was? It was actually my stomach, okay? (laughs) 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 In fact, when I left that field, the professor that had been my uh, kind of mentor in the program said, you know, we've really never had a student who makes straight A's in microbiology and fails the labs where you just go talk to patients. (laughs) The only rotation I did very well in was the psych rotation, which should have told me something back then, but it didn't. I just tried to keep persevering, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Was it the sight of blood or? 
Well, I don't know if you want to talk about that, but okay. I, let's just say that, that every time a patient got sick, I did too, okay? And so I joined them. I had empathetic uh, I was going to say, you're just a very empathetic <laughs> yes, person. Yes, every time. I'd be holding a pan for them and a trash can for me. So, <laughs> so you get out of State, you got a sociology degree, mm-hmm. and you decide ministries you want to pursue. And which school was that, Southwest? Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. It was actually the largest seminary in the world at the time. And that was in Memphis, too? No, it was in Fort Worth, Texas. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. So you could to Fort Worth for how long? It was about three years. I went in 78, and I graduated in 81. And then where do you go? I, uh, my husband, I had met my husband there, and we got married, and we kind of, this was, uh, you know, back in the day, we had no money. We had absolutely no money, but we wanted to be somewhere near our families. Yeah. His family was in Shreveport. My family was in Chattanooga by then. And so it was like, okay, what's in between and it was either Jackson or, or Birmingham, and we chose Birmingham. And so we were there. We were broke, and I went to work as a social worker at a nursing home, got a job in about a week. He became the manager of a radio shack, and, uh, you know, Will was the love of my life, and he, uh, he and I were there. And then I started attending Dawson Memorial Baptist Church, which is a large church with about 7,000 members at that time. Wow. And uh, teaching a Sunday school class, as I always had, and— the pastor came to me and said, would you be interested? We're looking for a college minister. And so I ended up working with a lot of Stanford students, Birmingham Southern students, and then students from the, the Birmingham area who attended that church who'd gone away. So Alabama, Auburn, all of those places. So, so what does that entail in well, terms of working with college students in a ministry role? It entails a lot of kids coming to your house all the time. <laughs> it, it entails evening calls. And, uh, you know, I loved it. It was so much fun. And, you know, I was not much older than the students I was working with. I was 24, and they were, you know, 18 to 22 mostly. And they were mostly traditional college students at Sanford. So I spent days at the campus for those that were homesick. A lot of missionary kids went to uh, Sanford, and I, you know, formed a group with them, and we had kind of a support group so they could have a kind of a bonding thing. This is the day before there was a lot of, like, international student support and things like that. Sanford was a lot smaller, I bet. Absolutely. And so, but it was just a delight. And I had all the kids over to my house on Sundays, you know, and I had a tiny little house, our first home, uh, two bedrooms, one bath, and we'd have 30 kids over there. I taught a Sunday school class that ran about 100. And the the way I got 100 was we fed them lunch and had Sunday school (laughs) after worship, you know. So uh, You learned the secret of how to get people to come to a meeting. If you feed them, they will come. (laughs) It's always been my my thoughts. And and so it was a lot of fun. And we took them on retreats. We had weekend Bible studies on campus and also at Dawson. We weren't that far. Did that fill your need to help people? I absolutely loved it. I absolutely loved it. And how long did you do it? I did it for about 15 years overall. I, it, wow. it expanded. I moved to Montgomery, to First Baptist Montgomery. Okay. Uh, and ended up there in the, I was college students and single adults. So those, as those college students got out of out of college, all of a sudden they were... Kind of lost, aren't they? Yeah. So it was, we, I started a young professionals group at the time. That's what we called it. And then it expanded to all sorts of singles, people who were divorced, people who were widowed. Started support groups, you know, for children of divorce. And as I began to do that, I realized that's the part of my job I love. I love these support groups. I love offering hope and help. I started a ministry at the Mount Meg's facility for girls uh, that was a youth detention facility and had a group of women that would go out and we called it the listening ministry. And we just sit and listen, kind of like you do, you know, (laughs) just let them tell the stories of their lives Yeah, because they needed some adults who cared about them. And we began, I've always been interested in career development for other people. And so one of the things we did was we started asking them, what do you want to do? 
I know you've landed here, but what is it you want to do in your future? And the group of women and I that were going out there, they were all mostly young women. We found out they wanted to do different things. They had ideas and dreams that nobody had ever asked them about. And we began to try to find women across our community that did what they were looking to do. So pair them up with a mentor. Yeah. The hardest one I ever had was one woman said, I want to be a mortician. Oh, goodness. Trying to find a woman mortician <laughs> in Alabama <laughs> was like, okay, we find, and you know, there was no internet at this point. You know, we're just making phone calls, mm-hmm. you know. Finally found one in, in Mobile and asked her if she'd come up and meet with this young woman, and she did. Oh, how great. Yeah. So after that, I thought, and, and you know, as the Southern Baptist Convention kind of moved away from my faith and thoughts, you know, I'd always been one of those priesthood of the believer competency of the soul. Everyone goes straight to God. And as the convention kind of moved towards more pastoral authority and things like that, I realized this was not going to be where I landed long term. And so education had always been the way for me to make change. And so I went back and got another master's degree and I did it at Alabama State University. How many degrees do you have? Three. Wow. Let me go back to one thing you were talking about. A lot of college students, young women matching them up with someone who's doing what they're doing. How about for you as a female minister? This was what, the early 80s? Yeah, well, you know, interestingly enough, Mike, back in the 70s and 80s, lots of women were in ministry in Baptist life. In fact, churches were ordaining women to be deacons. And then there was the conservative kind of resurgence just as I entered seminary at the wrong time. I I have a knack for that, wrong timing. Uh, There was a kind of a backlash against that, and women were not given the opportunities to go forward. And I was fortunate. I was an officer in the Southern Baptist Women in Ministry nationally. But as the churches that I worked for became more and more conservative, Mm -hmm. less and less empowering of women and their willingness to accept all sorts of... I have a great story for this. Yeah. So I was at the Alabama Baptist Convention one time, and there were some friends of mine were trying to pass a resolution about women in ministry and what they could and couldn't do, you know. So, And of course, it was all the pastors, which were all male, and they had this resolution, and they were arguing over the wording of it, and it said... Understanding that God has called women to teach, preach, blah, 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 blah. You know, we, we were affirming their work. So they argued with about this resolution for about 30 minutes. And then one of my heroes and, and women uh, who was the head of the Southern Baptist WMU, Women's Missionary Union, uh, Mary S.C. Stevens got up and said this. She said, only woman who spoke to the issue. And all of us who were women in ministry were kind of, you know, crouching behind all the men. We just wanted this to go away. And she was leaning on her cane. She's 190 years old, you know, and she said, gentlemen, 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 your problem really is not with the start of this sentence. Your problem is with the end of the sentence. If God would just quit calling women to ministry, you would not have a problem with this. <laughs> you know, what a great way to put it. And she said, I want to move. We table this and not discuss the lives of these women in their ministries anymore, and which was the perfect thing to say. And she was the right one to say it. Yeah. And everybody loved her. Everybody laughed. It's interesting how tradition plays into all that. Because I was raised Catholic, and you know, mm-hmm. it's Catholic priest, and it's sure, no women, and and it's like just to your point, if someone's being called, what does it matter? Absolutely. And so, um, you know, from there, I uh, I went back and got a counseling degree and did counseling, community based counseling. I was made a clinical director my third week on the job, and. Uh, I began to not only work with people in the community who needed support. And this is still in Montgomery? It's still in Montgomery. And then my dad became ill. Mm. And I thought, I'm going to move back to Chattanooga. And I was lucky. Will said, yeah, let's go. And uh, so uh, we moved back. And I, my second week here, Family and Children Services, which is now the partnership, advertised for a clinical director of their counseling center. And I 
applied for that job and got it. And so I did counseling here in the community. I have a very circuitous route to where I am now. Yeah, and, and that's kind of where we're getting, because all of these things you did before contributed to what you're doing now. It Absolutely. Made you, I don't want to say more qualified, but really all those experiences enable you to do what you're doing with signal centers. Well, it kind of baked me. You know, <laughs> That's a great way to put it. It baked you. Uh-huh. And so from there... I was here, and I, I loved Chattanooga always. Yeah. I, I vacationed here all the time. I spent every moment I could with my folks. We were very close. This was the place you came and saw family. And- Absolutely. It was home. I remember my aunt was working, uh, my Aunt Maxine, who's one of the few family members I have left, and just a delight, was working at TVA. And when I'd come into town, I'd go pick her up. The only place to eat was Shoney's, where Blue Cross's yeah. facility is now. There was no restaurants downtown. And now you can't throw a rock without hitting one. And that's so exciting. What year did you come back? It was like 94, 95. 96. So that was right before the aquarium was even built. My parents joined the aquarium as uh, founding members. Did they really? They heard it was going to happen. They knew something needed to happen for Chattanooga and they joined. Well, then you've got a pretty good perspective of the change Chattanooga's been Absolutely. Through. It's really amazing what this city has done mm-hmm. and the leadership. I wanted to be part of that. You know, and I was able to do that, the partnership. And pretty soon I was working to help. Um, actually, what happened was we were doing some pretty innovative things at the partnership. And the Tennessee Department of Human Services, I was in a meeting with them, and they said, we really want to know what needs to happen with uh, women on welfare. And the welfare population was huge at that point in Tennessee. And uh, I, several of us got together and said, we need a counseling program for families who are in low-income situations. We need to deal with five things. I can't remember them all, but substance abuse, parenting, domestic violence, you know, all of those kind of relationship skills and all of those things. Because if you don't get those things fixed, you're never going to get a job. You're not going to be able to take care of your family. And that's what everyone wanted, you know. And so the state asked me to join. I became a district administrator for a program that started counseling services statewide. So were you working for the state at that time or was that? I was actually working for the University of Tennessee at Knoxville. Okay. They took the program. They contracted with them to do it. The School of Social Work, which I now serve on their board of visitors. So it's it's kind of an exciting thing for me to be full circle. Yeah. And while I was there, um, the district administrator for DHS said, we need someone to lead the TANF program, which was called Families First, at Signal Centers because Signal had the contract to serve Hamilton County residents finding employment. I said, well, I've never done that. And uh, they suggested that I apply. And when, you know, the people funding you suggest you do something, you usually do it. And at least I do. (laughs) Anyway, so I went over there and I became the director of their Families First program. Well, and the bit I know you is it doesn't matter. You've never done it before. (laughs) I know you you figure out a way. Well, I tell you what I really do. I figure out how to get the people who can do it together. And, and that's that right is way. one of the secret sauces at Signal Centers. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about the history of Signal Centers. One, why is it called Signal Centers? And when did it come into existence? And what does it mean to Chattanooga and across the state? Well, it's a very interesting story because in 1957, two school teachers who had kids with cerebral palsy said, our kids aren't going to be ready to school. Now, mind you, this is 30 years before the ADA came into existence in the 80s, right? Mm-hmm. And they created a classroom and went to the school system and said, will you let us have it in here? We want to form a nonprofit. And Jeannie Henry, who was the founding director, uh, died a few years ago. But I was able to interview her and talk to her about the start of the organization. And it was quite something. These two teachers did that. And then they began to expand it. So it was eight kids, 1957. And 
The organization began as United Cerebral Palsy. That is almost unheard of in the late 50s because yeah. if a kid with cerebral palsy would be isolated. Absolutely. You, know, you, you can't be in the mainstream. You can't do this. And I know parents have fought tooth and nail Absolutely. against that. And there's still a fight going on about that because uh, people with disabilities are often excluded. We often talk about unemployment rates, but people in Tennessee who have a disability and want to go to work, 50% of them are unemployed or underemployed. It's the largest group of marginalized individuals. And that's never reported. No, it's not. So, you know, as the years went on, what they found was there was a need for after-school care for kids with disabilities so parents could work. So Signal started the first after-school program in our community. At least that's what Jimmy Henry said. Mm -hmm. So uh, there well, may I'm be others that would conflict with that, but that's what I know. And then uh, Signal began to look at, well, some of these kids are graduating from high school now. They're not ready to work. And so in 1980, they started a program for adults with disabilities. Started as a bowling league. They go bowling once a week. And then it became a day services. And we're the only social model adult day center in our region. So what that means is people come for fun, not for medical reasons. It also means that we're scrambling for funds all the time because we're not funded through insurance. We now have a Medicaid waiver and the rules are kind of relaxing. And so somewhere in the 60s and 70s, the name changed to the School for Exceptional Children. And about the same time, the school system designated exceptional ed as that for kids who were gifted. So Signal started getting all these calls from parents who <laughs> went and were saying, no, that's really not what we do. Um, and so what the board uh, talked about, we weren't just kids with cerebral palsy anymore. Mm -hmm. So how do we brand it? And they began to talk about we we're signaling that change for families. We're helping them make decisions. And so they became signal centers somewhere in the late 70s, early 80s. That's a great history of the name. Yeah, it's an unusual name. And people regularly want us to change it. And, you know, you think of the three big organizations that serve people with disabilities. There are lots of others, too, like speech and hearing and autism that you know what they do. But signal centers, Orange Grove and Siskin, mm -hmm. the names mean nothing. But their reputations, we know what they do because this is what they've always done. So Signal Center started out with just a focus on these kids with cerebral palsy and getting them ready for school and assimilating them into the classroom, but slowly, because of success, took on more things. Absolutely. What we saw was there were community needs, and Signal's always responded to that. So we now have 10 programs. And somewhere in the early 2000s, in fact, in 2003, I was already working at Signal. In 2001, I went there. In 2005, I became the CEO. The board asked me to apply, and I did. And um, we started working. We were working with child care providers because by now, Signal had an inclusive child care, and that we wanted more of that. And we began to coach and mentor child care providers, child care workers, in how to provide best practices for the students they took care of, so in early childhood education. And really, that was a movement across the nation during that time. There was money set aside at the federal level that came to our state. And Signal was doing a really good job of that, and there were 10 organizations all across the state doing different things. And the state said, we like Signal's model best. Would you take on kind of trying to standardize the services to child care workers across the state of Tennessee? So now you're not just Chattanooga, you're the entire state. That's correct. And we had a network that managed these other centers. Mm -hmm. And we still have that network. It is our largest program by far. And we provide everything from, uh, in fact, the year before the pandemic, we started a small business academy where someone who wants to start a child care can go through and learn all the licensing rules, learn how to do everything they need to do, 
We contracted with Tech Goes Home two years ago to provide technology services to child care providers across the state. And we fund that through our grant. And we began to add on infant toddler specializations. And most recently, we did an inclusion uh, specialization. And this year, we're launching an early literacy program that's going to be statewide. I want to ask a question about the new business, opening up a new business, the child care. Sure. My perception is you can go to any large metropolis, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of independent daycares. Is that who you're yes. trying to help the most? So if you are going to get a license in the state of Tennessee, you must go through Signals Small Business Academy. That is one of the steps you have to do. DHS also has a licensing component and a pre-licensure component. It is very extensive, the rules and regulations around child care. I mean, we're taking care of our youngest children and really at very vulnerable times in their lives. So we want to be sure we're empowering parents. We've got teachers. One of the rules, new rules is everybody who works there needs to be trained in CPR and first aid. So we propose to the state that they contract with us to provide that training statewide, and we do. We subcontract with you know, an accredited and licensed provider that can get everyone certified in CPR and first aid for littles. So every daycare, everyone who works at the daycare has to be certified in CPR for That's children. where we're headed, yes. Yeah. Right now, I think there has to be somebody in every classroom. And I may be, you know, I don't know the rules in and out. but uh, yeah. When we see a need, we're able to partner with our state and say, and we work with all the other groups that do this too. There's Tennessee uh, Early Childhood Training Alliance, TECTA. There's, uh, there's a bunch of other organizations that work with this too. But it's more than when you see a need. It's because you've been successful that the state says, okay, we want signal to do this. They, uh, they tapped us a couple of years ago. Our director of that program, Heather Hicks, was asked to lead a strategic plan for uh, child care for the state. Mm-hmm. One of the things we do well is we pull people together to come around an issue and try to solve it. And we don't care who. It doesn't always have to be us. Yeah. You, know, we'll, you just want to get it solved. A good example is Tech Goes Home. We absolutely have great technology skills. In fact, we have an assistive technology center that was one of the first in the state. And just explain Tech Goes Home a little bit for folks who may not be familiar with it. So Tech Goes Home started here in Chattanooga. Uh, Deb Socha is their leader, and they have a wonderful staff. And it is really to empower people who may not have access to technology to be able to use it effectively and connect them with the resources to get connected as mm-hmm. well. Well, and because everything's done technology-wise now, whether you're looking for a job or a kid's homework, and right. if, if you don't have access to a laptop or Wi-Fi. And the state is going to more and more technology-driven solutions. And they really did a modernization act uh, recently in DHS. It's a wonderful department with excellent leadership who's been there for decades. And so, you know, one of the things we knew is what often happens in a child care setting is that a good teacher gets promoted to director. And now she's doing collections for parents who don't pay she's hiring staff she's, she's not to teaching do, she's not teaching and she has not been prepared to run a small business which is what childcare is and it's on a very thin margin so anything we can do to make that successful so that children get what they need that's what we always keep in mind the outcome is this family can drop their child off in the morning and know they have a wonderful experience and they come home in the evening in healthy and having learned and having had a wonderful day with people who care about them yeah. Do you ever find yourself, you're CEO of Signal Centers, you got 300 staff, it's what, a $50 million operating Absolutely. Budget. It's a huge organization. Do you ever sit there and go, I can't believe I'm here? <laughs> oh, absolutely. <laughs> and, Actually, and how you got there? You know, it, it happened uh, in the past 10 years, it's been exponential. When I came, we had 82 staff, the budget was around $5 million. 
uh, you know, now, as you said, we're over 300 staff. This year we'll be close to 375. We got two new grants. And our budget 24 is 53 million. Wow. And it's really hard because it's almost like Signal Centers is two organizations. We have these statewide grants that are fully funded. And then we have our local services that we raise money for. And the budget for those statewide grants is far larger. Yeah. But, you know, the focus of our organization has always been what's going on locally. And when you think about I want to talk for, for a minute about our local programs because they have grown as needs have arisen. And the most recent one, well, the two most recent ones, one is we took over the Hart Gallery on Main Street, and then we also took the Imagination Library. And the Dolly Parton Imagination Library was being run by another organization in town, and they opted not to do it. Hamilton County was about to become the only county in the state without books for our birth to five-year-olds through the Dolly Parton Imagination Library. Everybody thinks Dolly pays for the books. Yeah. Dolly does not pay for the books, okay? Yeah. <laughs> Signal Centers raises the money for the books. So in the middle of the pandemic, I went to my board of directors and I said, I'd like to take on a program <laughs> where I need about $360,000 a year, and I'm going to count on you to help me raise that, okay? And uh, luckily, one of the things that comes along with that is the Governor's Early Literacy Foundation. Bo Watson is a big proponent of that and they match any funds raised locally. And so that meant I had to raise 180000 a year. That is not including overhead. And that's no small task. That's not a small task, but it's not been a hard task. It's been the easiest money I've ever tried to raise, really? I have to say. Is it the branding along with Dolly's Imagination Library that gets... I think that's part of it, but I think also there are thirteen to 14,000 children every month who get a book. That's incredible. And so... As we grow that, of course, you know, the program gets more expensive. So we'd love for it to cost 300000 a year from us because we want every child. And could you imagine if Hamilton County was the only county in the state I that was not part of a fathom. They would kick us out for North Carolina or Absolutely. something. <laughs> Absolutely. So, I mean, I think that one of the things that Signal has done is said, not necessarily always wisely, perhaps. That's what they get for having a social service person at the head rather than a business person, okay? <laughs> Any business person would have said, no, I don't think so. But, but, you know, what we've been able to do is say, how can we have the most impact, measurable impact on our community that helps families and their children? And what I've found is that when we invite people to join that effort, they do it. Nicole Watson is the chair of my fundraising committee. She and Bo have been incredibly active in supporting this initiative. And, you know, both mayors have joined on and written a piece of their budgets into making sure they do that because their citizens are getting these services. Yeah. And then we've had foundations like the Bobby Stone Foundation was the first one to step up and say, we're going to give you a multi-year grant for $30,000 to help wow. with this. And now the women of distinction for the past three years, all of the proceeds from their event go to the Dolly Parton Imagination Library. I'm maybe going to put words in your mouth, but they didn't do this out of the goodness of their heart. And what I mean by that is, it took you and your staff going and making those calls and presentations to convince them this was the right thing to do. It took us and our staff and the people who cared about this program. Mm -hmm. It wasn't just my staff. Our community rallied around this. And we have an advisory board that's made up of lots of other nonprofit leaders and lots of community partners. Erlanger Hospital now enrolls everybody who comes through there. That's the best way to grow the library. I have a couple more questions for you on that, and I want to ask you my final question. What in your past do you look back on and say, that's really the thing that got me where I am today? Okay, I know this is probably what everyone says, but it's my parents. Yeah. My parents, my dad told me one time, 
He said, um, you know, if you can work with people you love to do a job worth doing that helps your community, you're going to be in good shape. And he did that all of his life. And I feel so fortunate to have had my, my dad and my mom. Her, her focus was family. She did everything she could for her parents, for her sister, for me and my sister. She was just, you know, she focused her life on caring for her family. What a positive influence. It really was. And not everybody gets that. And I understand that. Well, and you're seeing that every day with your clients. So you've got an experience that they don't have. Mm -hmm. You know, the secret sauce there, I think, for me was, uh, this is an interesting story about my history. Neither one of my parents went to college. I'm a first-generation student. My parents together started a college fund for me, and they gave me a dollar for every A I made in elementary school and took it to the bank with my little bank book and deposited the dollar, and they they wrote down another dollar, you know. And I made straight A's through numbers of years just because I love seeing that bank account grow. It was two years after I graduated from college and I was in seminary and I had to write some kind of autobiographical, spiritual autobiography thing. And it was two years after that that I realized my parents had not gone to college. They wanted me and my sister to get through college. We both ended up getting master's degrees. Uh, My sister was working on a doctorate when she passed away. And their goal for us was to be well-educated and they felt like that was the future. I feel the same way. Work really hard at work worth doing and get all the education you can to know how to do it. They wanted you to have something they didn't have. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's great parents. One of my favorite quotes, I learned this in elementary school, believe it or not, in Kansas. They had us memorize poems and I picked a short one. Okay, (laughs) Edwin Markham said this. um, He drew a circle that shut me out. Heretic rebel, a thing to flout. But love and I had a wit to win. We drew a circle that took him in. And I feel like that's what Signal has done. We keep trying to put our arms around our community, put our arms around families, put our arms around other nonprofits so that we together we can all succeed and we can win. When we quit worrying too much about competing, when we work together to solve problems in our community, that's what magic happens. And that's what Chattanooga is about. And that's going to lead into my second to last question is you've been in Chattanooga now a long time, plus your family has seen a lot of change. What do you see as the biggest challenge facing in, let's say, the next decade? I think the biggest challenge we're facing here is the same challenge we're facing nationally. There is too much competition and there's a lack of pulling together in the same direction. And I think that... Uh, so a lot of division. I think if we can overcome the divisions, because I don't care who you are. I mean, one of the things signals in a sweet spot, because we're dealing with people's families. We're dealing with children. Regardless of your political beliefs, regardless of your religious beliefs, there is nobody that doesn't want this next generation to do better than we did. Yeah, There's nobody. And that is a common goal we should all be striving towards. Let's have our families have the resources they need to be successful in the future. And I think if we could all keep that in mind, that nobody's working against that. I've always said that everyone, all they want is for their kids to have better. Yeah. Whether you're in the United States or you're talking about someone who lives in the Middle East, it comes down to the family unit and you're wanting your kids to have more or be in a better position than you were. And it doesn't matter your zip code either. Right. Everybody wants that. I've never met a parent who didn't want their children to be happy and be successful and find the things in their life that are meaningful. It's a pretty simple way to look at it. And I do believe we've got to do something to level the playing field. 
And Signal started that way, helping kids with disabilities level the playing field. But it's true, whether it's economic, whether it's racial, whether it's disability, you know, whatever it is, we need to work together to eliminate anything that's going to keep our next generation from thriving. That's a great point. Last question for you. What would you tell your 25-year-old self is important for a happy life? First of all, I would say it's not happiness. It's joy. My favorite book is Man's Search for Meaning. And in it, Viktor Frankl talks about really three things. One, find a meaning for what you're doing. The second thing is help others. Just help. And the third thing is have courage so that you can speak your truth. I know that at 20-something, uh, I sometimes pulled my punches when I shouldn't have, and I punched when I shouldn't have. <laughs> so, you know. Yeah, I know that experience. <laughs> and I find myself now punching more mm-hmm. because I am, I, you know, I have more confidence and I've also built the relationships, which life is all about relationships. So invest in those, whether it's relationships with people who can make change, whether it's relationships with your own children, keep those relationships central. That is absolutely critical. And I, I agree with you. I hadn't read Victor Frankel's book, but I probably should. It's amazing. Don, I've really enjoyed this. You're an asset to Chattanooga. You're a fascinating person. Thanks for talking with me. Thank you. And you're a great interviewer. This was fun. (laughs) Well, I enjoyed it too. Thank you. Thanks for listening to My Morning Cup, a podcast by Costa Media Advisors. If you liked this episode, please share it with a friend. I release a new episode each week, so be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple, Google, or wherever you listen to podcasts.